Let me introduce you to the most important players in today's event. I'm a conservative and a proud Kentuckian. Mr. President, you will not fill this Supreme Court vacancy. It's about issues we worry about every single night. This is one of the most awesome scenes that you can find in politics in this country. All right, everyone, welcome back into today's episode of the Pegasus Podcast. Very excited about today's episode because uh, some of our followers of the of the organization will know that that last month or a couple months ago, I guess now, uh, we had an event here in Kentucky around the 340B program, which I know some of our listeners are saying, what the heck is that? What is 340B? What does that even mean? You're going to learn all about it today. Uh, I promise you. But joining us, he was here in Kentucky not that long ago. Uh, I, I, I cannot sing the praises enough of the Pioneer Institute. Such huge fans of them. Always grateful whenever we're, we're able to do some work with them. Uh, so Dr. Bill Smith, who is Pioneer's uh, visiting fellow in life sciences, spent really his, his whole life in pharmaceuticals and sort of life sciences field. Uh, so really an expert on this program and many other things. Uh, Bill, thank you for joining us today on the Pegasus podcast. Aaron, thanks for your kind words, and I appreciate being here. Um, so I, I want to sort of start with, you know, I opened talking about 340B, and I think most people are saying, what the heck is that? What does that even entail? Uh, I, I joked about this before we got on that I think most average Americans probably know what Medicare is and what Medicaid is. Most of us understand what Social Security is and how it operates. When we're talking about 340B, we're talking about currently what is the second largest federal drug program in Correct. the country, something that uh, encapsulates thousands of hospitals, billions of dollars, you know, touches many, many Americans across the country, and yet is not discussed much. You don't hear it in the halls of Congress much or on mainstream media. And so before we get into some of the, the failures of the program, but some of the ways to, to sort of fix the program. Can you explain the sort of genesis of the 340B program, how it operates, and why it matters? Sure, that's easy. Um, you know, in the 70s and 80s, pharmaceuticals became more of a tool in the in the bag of doctors. They, they, there were more and more drugs being approved. Um, and pharmaceutical companies noticed that there were some hospitals that were struggling financially because they were treating patients that were homeless or uninsured. And, and there were, I, I would guess, about 500 of those hospitals that really provided a lot of uncompensated care. So pharma companies on a voluntary basis started giving these hospitals very deep discounts uh, because to help them financially. They were customers and they were in a, a tough situation. So they, they gave the, the pharma companies gave these discounts uh, on a voluntary basis. Uh, then Congress passed uh, a Medicaid law in 1990 uh, that required that pharmaceutical companies give the best price that they give to anybody to Medicaid programs. And again, some of these discounts they were giving voluntarily to these hospitals were 90% off or more. And pharma companies didn't want to give that price to all state Medicaid programs. So the, the discounts that they were giving to these hospitals were threatened. And Congress decided they needed to fix this. So in 1992, they passed the 340B program. And 340B sounds wonkish, sounds boring, but it just happens to be the, uh, the, the title of the uh, uh, Public Health Act that, where you can find this program. And <clears throat> so the program required that pharma companies now give discounts to some of these hospitals. Um, 
And in the beginning, the, the program was well intended. In the beginning, there were only about 550 hospitals enrolled in the program, and those, pro, those hospitals were indeed serving low-income patients. Um, but the program, for a variety of reasons, exploded um, in growth. And if you understand how the program works, you can understand why it exploded in growth. So a hospital can buy a $100,000 cancer drug, an oncology drug that lists price for $100,000. They maybe can buy it for, I'm just making this up, $20,000. So if they get a Medicare patient that comes in or a patient with good commercial insurance, maybe they're insured by United Healthcare, one of the other big commercial insurers, if that patient comes in and then gets this oncology drug, they might be able, the hospital might be able to bill either Medicare or the commercial insurer for close to $100,000, which means they're making $80,000 on every prescription. Moreover, there's an incentive for hospitals to, to capture patients that have good insurance, not to help people with uninsured or low-income people. Um, so if the hospital, for example, buys the drug for $20,000 and a patient comes in who's uninsured and the hospital were to pass that drug on to them for the cost of $20,000, the hospital would make zero profit. So there's not an incentive for hospitals to, um, to provide this charity care or uncompensated care to uninsured, homeless, or other people that are, that are struggling. Um, and not surprisingly, the program exploded because the, pro the hospitals learned, I can arbitrage these discounts and make tens of thousands of dollars on every prescription. So hospitals started buying up oncology practices in wealthy suburbs, uh, buying up rheumatology practices, any pra physician practice where there's, there are high priced drugs being dispensed, hospitals wanted to buy them. And we've seen uh, that, for example, with oncologists, 50% of the community-based oncology practices have now been purchased by hospitals. And that's not good for the overall healthcare system because mm -hmm. a, a, uh, a private oncology practice uh, tends to charge much less than a hospital outpatient facility. So the program is costing the healthcare system more money because these hospitals want to reach out into the suburbs and get good, good insured patients. So that's why the program has exploded from about 500 hospitals to thousands of hospitals now. Um, and moreover, they're contracting with tens of thousands of pharmacies uh, because they make so much money on these drugs, they can, they can compensate the pharmacies very generously. So many pharmacies have signed up to become contract pharmacies for this program. The program has just exploded. And yeah. You know, initially, I thought when I started looking at this program, you know what, pharma companies are pretty wealthy. If the hospitals are using these the profits from this program and plowing all that money into charity care programs or programs to help the uninsured, then you know what, it may be fine. It's not a great yeah. way to organize charity care, but maybe it's okay. But what I found was shockingly that as this program has exploded, as thousands and thousands of more hospitals have, have participated, as profits are just going through the roof for this program, hospitals are giving, 340B hospitals are giving less and less charity care to, to struggling, low-income people, uninsured people, homeless people. They're just not providing as much as they used to. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's why the program is most troubling to me, because it was intended to help to allow hospitals to get a little extra revenue to help with charity care. And they haven't been devoting it to that. Yeah, that's, you know, 
sort of looking at the the genesis of this, and you, you talk about this in some of your work and some of the, the reports too. One of the, the problems I sort of see is there's such vagueness in the the initial intent of the program, right? I mean, you mentioned in there, I think even a even the most staunch conservative understands that uh, you're never going to get government totally out of healthcare. And so if you can subsidize certain programs to help those who are indigent, and then hospitals can use those, uh, the, the revenue they get from that program to then, you know, build another wing of the hospital or build a, uh, a new cancer facility. Sort of like, oh, okay, I see the, that, that on, you know, the intent there seems good, right? Yeah. Uh, but the vagueness in which the 340B program operates allows for minimal, if any, oversight or reporting. And so the hospitals can say, here's this one good thing we did and just kind of run on that forever without actually proving that they're providing more charity care or actually helping those who are truly indigent. Uh, and so that, that sort of vagueness, lack of oversight from the beginning of this program, regardless of the intent, creates this scenario where bad actors can act badly, essentially. Yeah, and, and let me not paint with too broad a brush because I've looked at the data carefully and there are hospitals and clinics that are out there doing the Lord's work and are devoting a good percentage of their revenue to providing charity care. That's not the rule. That's the exception, unfortunately. Um, we found hospitals in Boston that provided 13% of their revenue that went just to charity care, which is phenomenal. But we also found very wealthy hospitals in the Boston area that were providing only 1% or less of charity care. So uh, again, I don't want to paint that this isn't a, a, a hospital problem in a, in a unanimous way. However, um, as a general matter, less and less charity care is being provided. Um, and that's that's troubling to me. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about when this program really starts to balloon. You mentioned in there it starts with a few hundred hospitals uh, and is is sort of relatively controlled in uh, certain areas. Um, it didn't always serve uh, the most desperate areas. But again, it was it was kind of controlled in the beginning. And then. There's some legislative changes along with the Affordable Care Act and some incentives to essentially become a part of this program, right? They're sort of like, get in, you know, take advantage of this. And then it balloons out of control and you get hospitals in Beverly Hills and then, you know, some of the most wealthy parts of, of you know, Cambridge or wherever. Yeah, Cedar sinai in LA, which is in Beverly Hills, is the largest 340B hospital in California. It's in Beverly Hills, California. So yeah. that tells you a lot. And you're precisely correct. Uh, I mean, the incentives are in place for this program to grow just because of the discounts and being able to arbitrage the discounts. But Congress, in their wisdom, decided that in order to become a 340B hospital or clinic, you become eligible if 11.75% of your patients are Medicaid patients. They thought if you're serving double-digit Medicaid patients, that's a proxy for you being in a neighborhood where there might be uncompensated care or low-income people. Um, the problem is that with the Affordable Care Act, the number of people in Medicaid went from 50 million to 80 million. So thousands of hospitals suddenly became eligible for this program because of the, uh, the explosion in Medicaid. Um, and some of these hospitals, again, some of these hospitals really need the, the 340B program. If you're in a, a neighborhood where the majority of your patients are Medicaid, 
you're not getting good reimbursements. So you may be struggling financially. I'm very sympathetic to those hospitals, but I've also found hospitals that are extremely wealthy, that have big donors, and they don't spend much on, on charity care. So Congress needs to sort this out and, and make the 340B program available to the hospitals that really need it, not to any hospital that just happens to have 11% of Medicaid patients walk in the door. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that, the Medicaid expansion? Because there's this, there's this irony in that, assuming that more people are then covered, you would, you would think there would then be a decrease in the amount of people who are truly indigent, who are showing up at hospitals, but we actually see an increase. It's a sort of reverse of like, where are these, where's this coming from essentially? Precisely. I mean, one would have expected, given that the intent of the 340B program was to provide uncompensated care to uninsured people in particular, people with low incomes, underinsured or uninsured. One would have expected that as the federal government went from 50 million people enrolled in Medicaid to more than 80 million people enrolled in Medicaid, that the 340B program would have seen a downward trend, right? There's There are fewer people out there without insurance. So why wouldn't uh, the, the program decline? We saw the opposite during the years of the biggest Medicaid growth. So more and more people with insurance, the 340B program and profits were exploding during those same years. It makes no sense, but that's just the way the, the program is structured. And Congress, Congress really needs to look at it. Yeah. I also want to talk about the physical locations here too, because I, I do think uh, Kentucky being a rural state, there's a lot of emphasis on rural hospitals that uh, struggle, continue to struggle. A significant amount of them have closed their doors. Uh, state audits show that you know close to 75% of them are close to closing their doors. They, they are understaffed. And so again, it, the, the, it's not uh, unremarkable to think that they need some sort of government assistance to keep them afloat because the, the care that they provide is critical. But uh, at one part in, in your report, and you talk about the, you know, during the expansion of the 340B program, it says, uh, as we have seen, as the program has go- grown, 340B entities are now less likely to be locally located in medically underserved areas. So again, even as it's, as it's expanding, we're not seeing it go to the areas we, we would traditionally assume are medically underserved or the more rural areas or the places that have hospitals that are kind of, you know, have razor thin margins. It's just kind of inflating the already profitable hospitals. Absolutely. And we've heard horror stories. I can't confirm some of these stories, but we've heard stories where, you know, a hospital in a wealthy suburb um, is at 9% of Medicaid enrollment and they have hired consultants to try to pass that 11% threshold so they can become eligible for the discounts. So there's no doubt the hospitals that came into the program after Medicaid was expanded are less likely to be located in low-income neighborhoods. That's just the reality. Yeah. I want to read from here too. One, this is from the uh, uh, Pioneer Institute report. One University of Southern California study concluded, quote, these results suggest that hospitals that began participating in the 340B program after 2004 are more likely to serve wealthier and more insured populations, which is counter to the original tent of the 340B program. I mean, it's a remarkable, you know, I don't want to say it's a scam, but in some ways the the program, because of the lack of oversight has completely lost its original intent and is just kind of a handout uh, to the wealthy in, in some way now. 
Yeah, and again, I'm sympathetic to rural hospitals. I'm sympathetic to hospitals who are, are getting large number of reimbursements from Medicaid, which is generally underfunded and, and cuts them short. Um, if they could get more commercial patients, they'd be more viable. I'm sympathetic to those hospitals, but I'm not terribly sympathetic to the wealthy hospitals that, that uh, have big endowments, that have big donors, and that are providing less than 1% of their revenues in the form of charity care. And they're reaping tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars through this 340B program. Yeah. So we mentioned before too, these, the, the hospitals sort of vaguely speak of the hospitals um, tend to come out every year in defense of this program and say, but look, look at this great thing we did. And, I, and, and you know, to your point, Bill, there there's amazing things that a lot of hospitals do with charity work and deservedly, uh, you know, so, but the evidence seems to suggest that overall they aren't taking these savings to really invest back in charity care or some sort of advancement technology, like we mentioned. I mean, how, how do we create any sort of oversight to, to say, okay, if you are going to reap the benefits of this program, you are going to get savings. You have to, you know, truly dedicate it to charity care? Yeah, no, I think before they overhaul the program in a significant way, the first thing that they should do is establish some transparency. How, how much are you taking in in revenue from this program? And of that revenue that you're taking in from 340B, how much is devoted to charity care programs? I've read many hospital press releases and they're all very vague. They cite very important programs. They say, oh, we're going to provide bus service to seniors so that they can get infused with their drug. Great. I mean, I'm all in favor of those programs, but how much did you spend on it and how much did you make from 340B? Uh, you, you never get that level of detail. And I think the government, the first thing they ought to do is say, okay, tell us your profits from 340B and then tell us what percent of those profits you have devoted to helping low-income people. That would, that would be a very important reform. Yeah. Um, so this is largely a federal program, but but as we know with, of course, Medicaid and Medicare, there's a significant overlap with states. Um, it's not always easy for states to try to sort of find their footing here. Things like work requirements here in, in Kentucky was a battle for many years and was eventually, you know, tossed out. But um, is, is there ways to sort of start with states and then get to the, the federal government? Is there ways for states currently to implement some sort of this oversight. I mean, there, there's significant overlap. Uh, you know, I think of the the Jewish hospital here in Louisville, which received significant government funding uh, in just in the last decade. Is there a way to for them to build an oversight? And and, and I apologize, I should have looked it up. If the Jewish hospital is a 340B hospital, I'm I'm not sure. But is there a way for for state governments to build in some of this oversight, or are they going to get sort of laughed out, laughed no, out. That, well, there's a couple of reforms. It depends on the state law and I'm not familiar with all of them, but states have to file. Mm -hmm. They have to file all sorts of tax information as nonprofits with the state. The state could require in some states, uh, again, I don't know all the state laws, but in some states, they could require the hospital to declare their profits from 340B and also tell the state, what they're spending as far as charity care numbers. And there are other things that states can do. One of the big problems with the program are, are so-called duplicate discounts. So a Medicaid patient comes into a pharmacy and fills a prescription. The, the drug manufacturer has to pay a big rebate to the Medicaid program for that 
prescription. But the pharmacy may have bought the drug with a 340B discount. So the cost of the drug, sometimes there are some cases where the pharma manufacturer actually has to pay the state money for every prescription that's filled. They don't get any money. They pay money because you get this duplicate discount, which is illegal. And, and that's one way states could, could kind of crack down and say, you know what, if you're a Medicaid patient and you go in and you get your drug for free and the manufacturer has to pay a rebate, it can't be a 340B drug that you're dispensing. Um, it's already illegal under federal law, but that you could make it also illegal under, under state law and do some enforcement. Yeah, that I mean, that is just remarkable. I'm just sort of in awe of that that story. Um, one of the other things we see states do a lot is um, the sort of geographical uh, type things, medically underserved or uh, special taxing districts and things like that. Uh, on a state level, would there be an ability to sort of force 340B hospitals to, to provide care to these sort of medically underserved areas? Yeah, again, I, I personally would start with transparency because yeah. I think you could shame hospitals to to spend more on charity care if people actually knew how much money they were taking in from 340B. Uh, but I assume state law could require them to, to spend a certain percentage of their 340B revenue on charity care, particularly if they were in, they were making a lot of money on 340B and they were, they were in a, an area with many underserved patients. Uh, I would think a state could potentially do that depending on state law. Yeah. Um, let's talk about federal government trying to fix this program, which um, I can sort of hear listeners rolling their eyes because anytime you get out of the state legislature and have to talk about Congress, people just think, ah, nothing ever gets done. Things only ever get worse. Um, but again, getting back to the kind of genesis of this program, uh, you talk a lot about this in, in the report too. There's such incredible vagueness in what is charity care? What is the true intent of this program? Uh, and, and I think it's important to note too, we're not talking about removing the program or getting rid of it uh, or, or significant cuts to it. Um, but how can we start to get the program back to a, the original stated intent, but also try to create some barriers to where we know what that actual intent is. We can define what charity care is. We can define like sort of set definition, set um, guardrails here. What are some of the ways that the federal government, if it was to ever do anything productive, uh, could start to sort of reform this program and make it effective again? Well, one of the challenges, uh, Jared, is that, uh, hospitals are in many, many congressional districts, the most important employer in the mm -hmm. district. So you start out with a very difficult political lift if you want to reform this program. You know, pharma companies who are concerned about this program are generally located on the coasts in Boston or California and New Jersey. They, they don't have as broad a reach as the hospital community. And, and you know, hospitals are important employers. I don't, I don't want to disadvantage the ones that really need the aid. Um, so you start with a, a difficult political problem in reforming it. Um, again, that's why I, I hate to repeat myself, but I think transparency would be a good first step. If Congress would just require under the program individual 340B hospitals to show the profits that they're bringing in each year and also to show what they're spending on charity care so that 
impartial observers could compare the two. People like me could compare the two and we could find out who were the good actors on the hospital side and who were the bad actors. Um, and that would go a long way towards reform, I think, because I think you'd discover a lot of hospitals that were taking in tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars under the program and spending very parsimoniously on charity care. Yeah. So the uh, sort of uh, duplicate discounts sort of leads us into the question of fraud here, too. Uh, you know, we, we get away from sort of intent and, and towards true malpractice from some of these uh, some of these bad actors. Um, one of one of the interesting things in the in the report is a recommendation to turn this into sort of a rebate as opposed to an upfront subsidy. And that way you sort of, again, have to sort of prove that you've followed the the letter of the law and then you get your rebate. Can you talk a little bit about that and helping prevent some of this fraud? Yeah, right now when a patient goes into a pharmacy and they're a Medicaid patient, in the, in the case I talked about earlier, the transaction happens so quickly, they can't identify a duplicate discount happening. Yeah. The pharmacy doesn't know that the drug might be a 340B drug at the, at the counter and they don't know the patient, the, the, the manufacturer is going to have to pay a Medicaid rebate. So they don't know it's a duplicate discount. I think this pers personally, I think this could be fixed, um, that computer systems could be upgraded mm -hmm. so that you could figure out right away that this is a duplicate discount that's happening and, and you can block it. Uh, I, I think that, that that kind of thing should happen right away. But I think this, um, I'm guessing because you can't, you can't find out with certainty, but I'm, I think there's a lot of fraud in this program because um, not only is there the duplicate discount problem, there's the diversion discount, there's diversion problem. So you can buy 340B drugs and then resell them to patients who have commercial insurance and uh, at the pharmacy level and make a, a killing on it when you're not really supposed to do that. You're only supposed to give it to certain patients. So a patient may not be even be a 340B hospital yeah. patient. They may just be a random patient who walks in the door and you give him a 340B drug and then you bill his insurer. That's not supposed to happen. The patient is supposed to be affiliated with a 340B hospital. I think there's a lot of fraud going on this program, but, you know, and state and federal governments should try to get to the bottom of it. Yeah. And, and as you're saying all that to him, I'm only thinking as it grows exponentially, you're only dealing with more transactions, right? You're dealing with more patients. You're dealing with the, the ability of, of hospitals and pharmacies to expand and, and more easily hide these things or, you know, uh, sort of in, inflate the fraud uh, because it's growing out of control, too. Yeah, just to give you some sense of the size of this program, our estimate is between there's there's between 32,000 and 38,000. 340B pharmacies in the United States. There are only 60,000 pharmacies total. So the majority of pharmacies in the United States participate in the 340B program and can buy the drugs at deep discounts. Who they're selling them to, we don't necessarily know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's a shocking lack of oversight for what will be the largest federal drug program in the country and in, in very short time. Yeah, it's uh, there are 80 million people enrolled in Medicaid, um, and the 340B program is now larger than the federal Medicaid program with 80 million enrollees, and will soon be larger. By 2026, analysts estimate it will be larger than the, the Medicare program. And as you know, seniors take a lot of drugs, so that's that's a big program. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah I was. It's it sort of you know. Uh, 
I was talking with somebody about the subsidies for um, electric vehicles the other day, and they said, well, you know, I, I think it's good. I, I think climate change is real and I'd, I'd love to, you know, make the planet safer. And I said, look, I'm all for that. I think that's great, too. But these vehicles aren't much safer than the gas powered ones. Right. The, the, the emissions are just as bad. And so you're you're doing sort of the same thing here. Right. I love the intent, the idea of, of serving this population. And the idea of increasing charity care and allowing for some of these underserved communities to, to expand their hospitals and not have to close their doors is great. But when you're not actually accomplishing that and the hospitals are, are not serving these communities and, and not uh, providing more charity care and not, you know, uh, expanding into the, the populations that have been underserved. Well, then clearly your program is failing, right? I mean, it's it's remarkably yeah, obvious. I mean, people in politics understand that uh, there are many worthy social welfare programs or even defense programs where policymakers have identified a need and they've tried to put together a program that's going to help solve that problem. What happens sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes is the programs gets captured by the vendors. The vendors are making so much money providing homeless services or transportation to low-income people or health care. The, 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 the vendors become more important than the patient population you're intending to serve because they're making so much money from the program. And this, this unfortunately is not co- uncommon in government programs. The vendors capture it, they create a lobbying firm, they keep the money flowing, and it becomes more important than serving the patient population that the program was intended to serve. Yeah. And if those hospitals truly believe that they are following the intent of the program, they shouldn't worry about increased oversight. They shouldn't worry about uh, transparency. You know, yes, yeah. those sorts of things. And and guide rails are saying that must go to charity care. If they believe that they're doing that, well, then you don't have to change a single thing that you're it, doing, exactly, right? Exactly. I can think of some Boston hospitals that would gladly open their books because they're providing so much charity care. Yeah. They would get they would get a yellow ribbon from the politicians because they're they're doing the right thing. But there are other hospitals that are very wealthy that aren't doing the right thing and opening their books. They would do only very reluctantly. Yeah. Yeah. And and I always think, too, that the the good actors should hopefully stand up to the bad actors or those who aren't, you know, aren't aren't being able to be served because of this. Right. That that this is a program that is costing taxpayers a lot of money. You know, if you want your tax dollars going towards what was the original intent of this program and serving those who are in these medically underserved communities, well, then you need to need to fix this program, you know? Yep. Um, so Bill, I, I mentioned it many times during uh, the podcast today, but uh, the report from Pioneer Institute, uh, 340B drug discounts an increasingly dysfunctional federal program uh, available on the website. But if people want to find any other stuff, you or Pioneer, or that you might recommend around the 340B program, what's the best way they can do that? Well, our website has everything that I write on it. It's called pioneerinstitute.org. You can find, go to the life sciences page and you'll see I've written on many different topics involving biopharmaceuticals, including 340B. And I'll tell you, we are working on a study, which you'll be interested in. We're going to create a website that shows the number of contract pharmacies out there. As I said, it's estimated to be 32,000 to 36,000. And you'll be able to go on this website and click on your state, Kentucky, and you'll be able to see where the contract pharmacies from Kentucky hospitals are located. And you won't believe where some of them are located. There There are Massachusetts contract pharmacies, for example, in California, Hawaii, Florida, and Puerto Rico. Why? We don't know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but... 
uh, for some reason, Massachusetts hospitals write a contract. Maybe, maybe the Hawaii pharmacy serves the Obamas. I don't know. They live on Martha's Vineyard in Hawaii. Maybe they, they fill their prescriptions yeah. at the contract pharmacy in Hawaii, but it, it doesn't make any sense to me if, and you got to think something, something's not right when, yeah. when I can understand why they might, you know, there might be a contract pharmacy in New Hampshire for someone who lives in Northern Massachusetts or in New York for someone who lives in Western Massachusetts, but California, Florida, Hawaii. I mean, yeah. they, this makes no sense. Yeah. 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 I cannot recommend enough, uh, both the work of, of Pioneer Institute and the work that Bill has done on the 340B program. Again, I sort of opened this saying that I think there's not enough people talking about this. Uh, a part of the, the problem with the program too, is we don't know exactly everything that's going on, whether it be with these pharmacies or hospitals or whether they're actually providing the care that they're they're claiming. And so I cannot recommend enough the work that Pioneer has done on this exceptional stuff on a really, really important uh, program and really important research. Uh, Bill, thank you again for joining us today. We were glad to have you in Kentucky a couple months ago. I'm sure this is not the last we'll hear from you or Pioneer. Well, or I'm happy to come back for the bourbon uh, anytime. There we go. Absolutely. I should have just had a bottle here. I should always have a <laughs> bottle here in the podcast studio. Yeah, it is a Friday after all. Friday. There we go. Yeah. Bill, thank you again for joining us today. My pleasure, Jared. I enjoyed it. Pegasus Podcast is brought to you by Bluegrass Media Lab and Pegasus Institute. If you like what you heard, share it with a friend. Leave us a review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. To learn more about our work on improving the lives of all Kentuckians, visit PegasusKentucky.org.